crypto falls into three categories. And if you're not in one of those three categories, you're going to go to zero. There's risk in the merge, and there are people out there who think it may not go well. If there is a problem, it could get really ugly. SEC rules would destroy crypto. It's a death sentence. The industry thinks it for a reason. So I think Bitcoin, if the Fed is seen to be re-injecting liquidity in order to keep the long end down, is going to explode up or another bull run. And I think that the level of that explosion is going to be a lot different than people think. What's going on, Dave? Well, kind of boring market these days, but uh, there's a lot underneath the surface. Yeah, so we're here today with Dave Weisberger, the CEO and co-founder of CoinRoutes. Dave has 30s experience in market structure, quantitative finance, and trade automation. Today, he and he's been at man, many firms from Morgan Stanley to Two Sigma, Solomon Brothers, which later got acquired by Citigroup. And today is the co-founder of CoinRoutes, which is an algorithmic trading service. So Dave, uh, first question I have for you that I want to kick it off is, what's trading markets these days? You're saying it's boring. What's, what, what's moving things up? We've got the merge. We've got Tesla dumping the Bitcoin. I mean, I think that it's it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, my thesis is we're in the eye of a hurricane. We had the leading edge of the hurricane was when the Fed finally decided, oh, my God, inflation is a lot higher than we thought. It isn't transitory. What the hell are we going to do? And they started raising rates. And once they started raising rates, it's sort of like the old, uh, you know, the old Warren Buffett aphorism where, you know, you don't know who's swimming without drawers on until the, the water recedes. Uh, when they started raising rates, it stopped a lot of speculation. When the speculation stopped, many things happened. So we suffered through the Terra Luna debacle. We then suffered through various other debacles triggered mostly by Three Arrows Capital being insolvent. And we found complete moronic idiocy on the part of very greedy founders on, of several firms where they put their customer funds entrusted to uncollateralized or poorly collateralized loans to these this entity, Three Arrows, as well as others, which then caused a knock-on effect of people having to forced sell collateral from the collateralized loans, mm -hmm. knocking down Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, over the summer. That happened at the same time, however, and people always forget this, that the tech stocks that were the high flyers at the same time all fell around the same amount. I mean, if you look at Netflix compared to Bitcoin, you'll see that the trailing, that the leading edge of that financial hurricane knocked them both down more or less the same. I and mean, actually, Bitcoin was almost exactly in line with Kathy Wood's ARK portfolio mm -hmm. and actually yeah. outperformed many of the worst ones. And the reason is it was what had to be sold. It's not that Bitcoin had an issue, but there were people who owned it. Uh, as collateral and had no choice but to sell it. And they found willing buyers. It is founding willing buyers that average down. At a low people, price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're smart, you're going to buy down. You know, Ethereum was caught someone in the same maelstrom. Uh, altcoins, on the other hand, many of them got wrecked. Uh, some of them have had small renaissances, etc. cetera. Uh, Lots of things that have gone on. I mean, one of the other things that's gone on is the centralized lenders, people who the, the humans controlled the lending, uh, many of them, well, went bankrupt, and others mm -hmm. have had issues, significant issues. Meanwhile, the lending protocols, the DeFi protocols, the Aves of the world, all pretty much worked exactly as designed. The issue, in terms of the price of those tokens, is really a question of value. You know, how much value can the tokens extract or accrue to the token holders? And so, yes, they're down, but they've all had nice little rallies off the bottom. 
And frankly, if one believes in the long-term potential, you can see uh, why there would be a lot of value in those. And so people like Jeff Dorman from ARCA Funds mm -hmm. categorizes quite well. I, I, he's much more eloquent on the subject than me. But I think there's a lot of cross-currents going on. But we did learn a lot over the summer. We learned, at least in some respect, who were complete charlatans. Yeah. And we learned in some respect that there's a need for people to actually look at what they're investing in. I mean, regulators will yell about disclosure needs, and, and perhaps that's a good idea. In fact, I do think it is a good idea. But the truth is, is things like counterparty risk that every other asset class people care about, people in crypto should absolutely care about it. Something my father always used to say to me, if someone tells you something that sounds too good to be true, guess Probably what? Is. <laughs> it is. So when you hear 18% interest with no risk, you should be saying to yourself, the first, my first reaction should be to put my hand over my wallet because I know someone's coming for me. And there, a lot of those things are what went on. But and, you know, I think what happened is that people got desensitized where crypto had a APYs of a thousand percent, a hundred percent. And so then all of a sudden, the 18% seemed actually conservative. As crazy as it sounds within the crypto space, that was one of the most conservative rates. Yeah, it's, it, there, there are two cross currents here that are interesting. One is absolutely what you just said. It's sort of like in our business. So we save people multiple multiples of what we charge. We charge low low number of single digit basis mm -hmm. points to most people, and we help them save uh, probably small double digit number of basis points. Mm -hmm. Now it's amusing, but I once actually actually wrote an article about this. You can see it on our website, buried deep in our blog, where I did the analysis and said, listen, if you think the thing you're buying is going to go up by a factor of 10,000, then saving 10 basis points on those first purchases, you're going to multiply that by 10,000. It's going to be worth more to you. But trying to convince people to save pennies when they think they're making hundreds of dollars mm -hmm. is just a hard thing. The flip side is what you said which is when people are making so much, when markets are, are, and you could just buy Shiba token at you know six zeros and a penny and think it's gonna go to a dollar and, and that will make you brilliant, mm. why do you care? And it's like, oh, someone says offers you 18%, you go, ah, screw that 18%. I'll borrow the 18% because I'm gonna make so much money in these coins. So there is some of that. The other thing that was happening though is that there used to be significantly more demand to borrow blue chip uh, crypto. So like, this is something and that people they, don't they, think they about. They were bored to do what? To, to borrow, to be able, for market makers. So for example, yep. uh, it used to be true before, you know, in 2017, and 17 was crazy, but 2018, 19, you could, if you owned, if you had access to the ability to borrow Bitcoin, you could place Bitcoin on Coinbase, on Kraken, on Bitstamp, on Binance, you know, trade in USDT, whatever. And then when one of those exchanges got too far above the others, Right. if the you orbit. had the coins there, you could sell it. And if you sell it, now you're gonna lock in profit. Now this would happen you know, multiple times a day, so firms would, would itch to do it. And sometimes, it was funny, I remember 2019 really clearly, it had gotten a lot better, but it still took 40 minutes to move Bitcoin from one exchange to another. So if you saw a major arbitrage open up between multiple exchanges, it could last for close to 40 minutes. Now, in the beginning, it would get sold down pretty quickly and only in a rare case where the demand on that exchange outstripped the available supply that people had borrowed would it then persist. But the truth is, is you could see it. And so there was always this demand for borrowing these blue chip coins mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to do this arbitrage. 
Then Fireblocks came along and convinced all the exchanges to allow zero confirmation transfers because they trusted the Fireblocks network. They took 40 minutes down to less than a minute. All of a sudden, the demand to borrow Bitcoin went because, you know, for at least that purpose. There's still need for borrowing Bitcoin if you wanted to hedge things like non-deliverable forwards, if you want to do spot or, you know, OTC options. There's still reasons yeah. to borrow, but the demand was not nearly as ubiquitous, not nearly as strong. So the natural source of what was very obvious yields for a lot of these lenders dried up. And so now it went out on the risk curve. Now you're loaning to people who are, are playing with structured products or playing with derivatives or might have a hedge book or might have a prop strategy. Yeah. And once you start doing that, now your collateralization risk becomes bigger. But if you don't have a risk management committee, you don't have a risk management you know, approach, and you just kind of say, eh, everyone's going to pay me back because everybody's making money, uh, bad things can happen. And right. I know it sounds like a gross oversimplification, but a lot of what happened this summer were firms who basically said, these guys are, they're the speakers at every conference. Everybody wants to hear from these guys. They can't default. They'll be great. And I can give these really good APYs to my clients and I can attract more business. And my clients are used to it. If I have to stop giving them those APYs, they're going to pull the money from me. And then you get and, into and, that and, situation. And it was a lot of like really simple and stupid trades where they assumed that the customers were, you know, even dumber where we talk about like whether, whether it's GBTC, staked ETH, usually with, you know, illiquidity risks. But it's like, well, not why should this ever go wrong unless people pull out? Um, but you've, you've said a lot of things. So I want to like um, peel it back at the very beginning. You know, I was like, you know, what's driving the market day? You said you said there was a lot of forced selling. You know, with Luna, LFG, unwind. We had um, Celsius unwind, block Fi, and so forth. Is the forced selling over, or do you see more coming? For example, just to I think Hodlun out another lender um, filed for creditor protection in Singapore. So there's smaller players now. Um, or do you think more is going to come out of these bankruptcy proceedings? I think that that. The, the eye of the hurricane thesis is simple. I think that all the forced selling that's going to be material to the rest of the crypto market is done for the summer. I think that what has to what we have to get through the fall period as people get right back to work and, and historically we've seen this. I mean, history doesn't always repeat. I understand mm -hmm. that a lot of people think you know a lot of chartists always go back and look at, at charts. Oh well, this is going to happen again, but it often rhymes. This feels a lot to me, and I mean a lot like uh, 2000. So in 2000, we had the internet bubble being pricked, we thought, in March of that year. Mm -hmm. And there were some massive days. NASDAQ had like the largest single intraday swing ever uh, in that day. It was like a 20% move on that market. It was up six, down 14, or in some direction. I can't remember which was which, but it was a lot. And it was pretty ugly in the early spring. What people fail to remember is it a shadow rally happened where the large cap, uh, you know, the large cap stocks in, uh, that were part that participated in the internet bubble rallied almost back to their all time highs hmm. by August. Short squeezes or uh, lots of different things, but you know, okay, it's over. Whew, we can get back to it. The thesis is still intact, etc. And then as the economic news started coming, as more and more people started getting clear eyed looks in the fall, all of a sudden in the fall we had. Well, you know, fairly epic, you know, collapse, and that collapse continued for some time. The reason why I say it rhymes and, and doesn't repeat mm -hmm. is that I think in crypto, there's certain, a lot of projects where valuation is actually quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually think Bitcoin is at an asymmetric return profile to the upside that is rather extreme, uh, which is why I think it's the last thing to get sold when these things happen. But there's a lot going on, and there's a lot uh, to unpack. 
and we could talk about Bitcoin maximalism and where I think that falls down. And we can talk about people who want to invest in things because they think Bitcoin is, is they're going to overthrow Bitcoin for some reason or another, and which I think that's insane also. But the fact is, is there's a real value proposition in crypto. There's a real value proposition in a lot of, of equities as well. And then there's others that don't. Mm-hmm. And it would not surprise me to see uh, some issues going on. And, and the fact is, is I think at the core of this, I think the Federal Reserve in the U.S. is trapped. Keep in mind, at today's interest rates on the long side, the government is paying less in interest payments than it did back when its debt was one quarter of what it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If interest rates ever normalize on the long end to where the government borrows to being anything close to what the rate of inflation is, which would be a zero interest rate, you know, real interest rate, if they had to pay that, that would squeeze out the rest of the budget. You literally would have no room for discretionary spending without going into deficit. The government can't afford that. Right. So the Federal Reserve needs to engineer the long end of the curve down. They make a lot of claims about caring about the short end, but they don't really. And they make a lot of claims about caring about you know inflation. Well, they do insofar as it affects the long end. But as long as they can keep inflationary expectations down, they're doing their job. That's been the historical the historical overlay. The problem here is this is an election year and a very politicized Fed. Now, you know, there was an article yesterday called, you know, that was kind of funny, which talked about how that Powell is the most politicized Federal Reserve chairman. But the fact is, does anyone really believe that with the controlling party in power doesn't want to pressure the Fed to do something to make people feel less pain when they go to vote in November? And the answer to that is obvious. I mean, that's what's going on. That's what the that's why I think Tesla and a lot of the tech stocks have rallied 50 percent off the bottom. The reason they have is because people are saying, well, the Fed, they can't raise rates anymore. I think that people don't understand what that really means. I mean, they want to engineer the long end down, but I don't think they really care about financial markets or the short end, at least not until perhaps October. I mean, their best scenario would be, would have probably been the markets that continue to crash through to, you know, sometime in September, and then to engineer a spectacular rally for the last six weeks of the of the election cycle. But that's, that's what they probably wanted happening. to do. So where... What does your take for the next FOMC meeting? Is it they're going to raise again? They're going to raise again. I suspect they'll do 50 instead of 75. Maybe they'll do the same 75. I don't know. I mean, I, I think Neil Kashkari is a very strong barometer. He used to be one of the biggest doves at the Fed, and mm-hmm. he's basically saying they need to keep fighting inflation. But this is a right-hand, left-hand deal. Just remember, the Fed has two tools. Well, they have more than two, but they have two basic tools. They have short-term interest rates, and they have liquidity. Yeah. And I think it's going to be like the old, you know, like the old magic acts. You know, when you're when you learn to do magic, the first thing they teach you is create a diversion, and then do what you're really going to do away from the diversion. So the left hand does attracts all the attention. You do everything with the right hand. Mm. The left hand is the rates. This is liquidity. I will be stunned if there isn't some version of quantitative easing in the six weeks before the election, mm. even if they don't raise rates. That, on the other hand, will trigger a significant rally in certain sensitive financial assets, most notably among them Bitcoin. That's my. That's what I actually think could happen. And it, it, honestly, this is not newsworthy or a big deal in the sense of, you know, Arthur Hayes has been basically saying almost identical things. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I came to the same theory and then I read what he said. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm on good. As far as I know, his market calls have been pretty damn close to perfect. So I feel pretty good about mine. 
because we agree. Of course, I always worry when I agree with too many people, but the fact but is- But there's certain people when- you I know. just don't see how the Fed can allow liquidity to, to, to flood the, you know, flee the system. They need more liquidity to keep the long end down. Right. Now, now, now you said, you know, my, my take from you so far is that you do believe that there's some kind of a trend of spurs because on one hand, you said there's a lot of tokens that are vastly overvalued. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of fundamental plays. So the, the irony is with crypto, I would say, let's say three out of four years, that's been my observation. Um, we've got a very high correlation where almost everything goes up together, everything goes down together. And then there's, you know, one or two years of, for example, like 2019 had pretty, you know, had pretty good return aspersion where Bitcoin went up, a lot of altcoins kept leading. Is that a similar scenario that you see playing out for the next 12, 18 months or so? You know, I hate, I'm really good in terms of generically getting the message, but the timing is hard. I don't know about 12 months. I don't know, mm. 36 months. What I do know is this. My theory and the way I look at the world is that I basically think crypto falls into very roughly three categories. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in one of those three categories, you're going to go to zero. Okay. So the three categories are Bitcoin, i.e. store of value, mm -hmm. and that is the base layer of the internet, to use Mark Yesko's words, etc. cetera. Uh, the second category are platforms. Mm -hmm. you know, people call them layer ones, but we'll call them whatever you want to call them. Smart contract platforms. There's enormous use cases, and it's not just one. Ethereum certainly is in pole position. Uh, Solana has some interesting use cases. There are others. People could debate them that, that understand the tech better mm -hmm. than me. But the fact is, is there's some big use cases, and I want to come back to that because it's mm -hmm. important. A lot of Bitcoin maxis just don't get what those use cases are. And the third is, you know, kind of call it whatever you want. Call them communities. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the theory behind communities, I'll, I'll make very simple. If you look at the history of technology of the, over the last 50 years, arguably one of the single biggest things that happened was the development of open source technology. Mm -hmm. And it happened because people felt like it. No incentives whatsoever. Linus Torvalds got paid zero for doing Unix. Countless thousands of developers got paid nothing for making Unix the operating system that basically runs the world these days. Mm -hmm. You know, it's outperformed Microsoft, it's outperformed Sun, it's outperformed all these others because it was open source, because people, tech people cared about it. Now imagine what happens if you can figure out a way to incentivize developers to work on those sorts of community open source projects. Well, that's what native crypto tokens essentially allow you to do. To me, that's a very big deal. It is a very big deal that unfortunately has gotten conflated with very screwed up incentive structures, with yeah. very greedy founders, with lots of uh, I use the word charlatans before. We'll just mm -hmm. stay with that word. But the concept that communities that are building open source technologies can create a native token to reward developers that actually have used code branches in Git, for example. I mean, you can make this you know, reasonably well-defined. That's going to happen. Now, you notice I didn't talk about NFTs. I didn't talk about a lot of other stuff. And the reason is because that's all based upon, those are all use cases based upon smart contracts and platforms or potentially communities, mm -hmm. right? So those are just use cases they on top of it. can fit within those categories, right? Yeah. So, you know, when, I talk, when people talk about, oh, NFTs are gonna be the next big thing, and the answer in my mind is, yeah, it's gonna be very big, and for a bunch of different reasons, whether you're talking about art, or musicians, or video, or whatever, or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, a way for artists to be closer to it, for it to be clear, to, to understand, you know, 
you look at, at when you go to a museum and you look at a piece, you think you're looking at the real piece, but any art dealer will tell you that some number of, of pieces in some museums are actually reproductions, and you just don't know. Mm. Well, the reality is with NFT technology, you can know. And that, that's kind of a big deal. And on the other hand, we have every single thing that comes out, and I don't want to pick on any one of the particularly you know, popular NFT cases, but I'll just say that the NFTs that people are paying for that are JPEGs, basically, uh, are one of two possibilities, every one of them. They're either Beanie Babies or Birkenbags. Beanie Babies basically were a dollar, you know, pennies worth of fluff and material that at one point were worth, you know, thousands of percent higher, you know, more than their material. Yep. And then eventually were worth nothing again. And Birkenbags are $10 worth of leather that gets traded for twenty-five dollars to $40,000 a bag. And has been doing so for 30 years. I was going to say, and oddly enough, like appreciated value. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like people can't decide something has value and keep that value due to scarcity. But you have to decide what you're buying is that when you're looking at, at artistic ones. When you're talking about the use cases for real estate, the use cases for fine art, the use cases for uh, potentially for stock registries. If you really want to get down to it, mm-hmm. I mean, DTC is hardly the, the, the model of a intelligent design. You know, you have the share registries held by one agent. Everybody owns stock in street name. I don't know if you realize, but if, you're in, if you think you own IBM stock, you don't. What you have is a claim on the IBM stock that Wall Street owns based on what your broker dealer has a claim at DTC. And what we've learned in many proxy battles recently is, guess what? We're not 100% sure who owns what company. Right. And, yeah. and so it, think Which about what NFTs would allow you to do if you turned every share registry into one NFT, then the pieces of the NFT, which could be fungible pieces, but those pieces of the NFT would have to, because you could control it on the ledger, would have to aggregate to the actual market cap of the company. That could happen. In fact, probably will. How, what chain it's on top of, how it gets built, who does it. I don't know. My guess is the regulators will keep it away from the public blockchains. It'll be on something permission. But the, the fact of the matter is there's use cases here. And, and that's so when I say, you know, we have to look at this, it, you should be doing real research. There are many use cases. Uh, the one that's my favorite example to conclude on this one is securities lending. Securities lending in the stock market is a multi, multi-billion dollar business controlled by more or less eight big banks. Mm-hmm. When you own stock in a retail account, that's called a box at the firm. And then they will loan that out if, in fact, they can and get, and get something for it. The, the big banks that are, control the lending of most of these boxes make somewhere between 80 and 90% of the returns on this. The institutional investors who own it get a small smidgen, and the hedge funds pay significantly more than they might have to if it was an open market. But it's not an open market. Right. Now, cons- compare that to what will go on with you know, the open DeFi protocols and how you would borrow crypto. Big difference. That's a fair market where the t- protocol takes a small piece and the lender and the borrower arrive at something that's more or less market rated. Are, are there any particular communities in that space that you are very bullish on? Like, are there? It hasn't happened yet. No. I, 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 the answer is is from like the makers, the Aves, the Maples, the Trufies that try to tackle that specific segment. I think that, that the technology is probably pretty close to good enough. The hard mm-hmm. part with that particular market is the regulatory structure has always mm-hmm. been an impediment to people actually penetrating it. it. You know, the benefit of having been over 30 years in the business is I've seen this story before. Mm-hmm. I still remember 
1990, sitting in a room with, and I was running program trading technology for Morgan yep. Stanley at the time. And I had been, built the first program trading system on Wall Street and this little thing called the crash of 87 happened and everyone blamed us. So back in those days, if I told people what I did for a living, I got booed at in cocktail parties. They'd be like, you did what? Because people thought program trading caused the crash. Well, no, we didn't. It was something called portfolio insurance, but that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But when they were investigating it, the thing called the Brady Commission would put together and they talked to me and my peers at all the other big banks. And then they did a follow-up a couple years later. So we were in 19, early 1990, sitting in a room, and someone asked the question, when do you think all trading in the United States will be fully electronic? And one by one, there were like six of us. Next year, next three years, next two years, next three years, next one year, they got to me and I said, I don't know, 10, 15 years? And they all looked at me like I was a heretic. They're like, but you're a technologist. How can you not think that? And my answer was, well, it's really simple. How much money do you guys make? Because I know that the average salesperson on the trading desk makes more than me and the managing director makes 10x, if not 20x what I make. Mm -hmm. And they will make less when the market goes fully electronic. So it's going to take time to get to, it's going to have to become an overwhelming case before banks are going to give up without a fight on all these sort of you know, oligopolistic businesses. It will happen, mm -hmm. but it's going to take time. And it'll probably start with other businesses and probably start in Europe and other markets where they have less control. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm curious, you know, in, in the beginning, it sounded a little bit like you you were mostly focused on Bitcoin, Bitcoin Maximus. Then you said you, the Bitcoin Maximus are wrong. So you now you like SOVs, platforms, communities. Mm -hmm. When it comes to platforms, you said, you know, Ethereum is kind of the front horse. Solana's kind of catching up. When it comes to market structure, the last few months have been really dominated by Ethereum with the Ethereum merge. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of flows are you seeing there? Is this mostly like retail hyping it up, or is in, is is are, do you think institutions are buying into this thesis like, hey, it's ESG it, friendly? It's it is. It is really, really interesting. Uh, normally, I have a strong opinion, uh, and you can probably tell because mm -hmm. I've had a lot of strong <laughs> opinions. Normally, my strong opinion would be buy the you know buy the rumor, sell the news. Mm -hmm that, okay, you know, buy it now and wait to sell it on September 15th when everything comes off without a hitch and people will be waiting for the new buyers to come in and boom. I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm not so sure is because there's risk in the merge and there are people out there who think it may not go well. Mm -hmm. And so you've seen, you know, you, you basically saw futures at, at, at weird uh, uh, premia to the stock because people thought, well, I'll buy after the merge, so yep. we won't have any of these problems. Well, when that happens, you know, with market makers in position where come the merge, they may have to cover their short positions in the spot. Mm, right. And so we could have an interesting follow through if it does come off without a hitch. On the other hand, if there is a problem, it could get really ugly because it's positioned in a way where I think the vast majority of the market just assumes it's going to be a driver of future value. So God forbid there's an issue and it doesn't come off without a hitch, it could be a serious problem for it. But the fact is, is that there, there's a lot of people who believe that the ESG side of it, uh, I am not one of those people. I think that proof of work actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I find the, the narrative around Bitcoin's use of energy to be disturbingly you know, reminiscent of a lot of the cons that have been played over, over our life. I mean, I'm reminded, and I was a high school and college debater, so I got the pleasure of reading all about Thomas Malthus, <coughs> who posits that 
you know, that we would basically, if you believed him, we would we would all be dead by now. Mm. Uh, or Paul Ehrlich, who in the 1960s, and this guy is still, by the way, revered. In the 1960s, wrote a book called The Population Bomb, saying if the Earth's population went over one billion people, we'd all we'd have mass famine, starvation, etc. Because he took a look at our food production. Now, of course, we're Here eight, we are. 8x that, <laughs> yeah. and we have a less lower percentage of of starvation than we did back then. So obviously. You know, a lot of the ESG narrative is driven by what are essentially extremists. Mm -hmm. uh, then there are others in the ESG narrative who make a lot of sense, who say, well, we need to adapt, we need to understand, we need to deal with things. So it, it's a really interesting dynamic. Bitcoin uses less energy than we spend on drying our clothes, mm -hmm. and not by a little, not by a lot, or not by a little, it's by a fair amount. We actually use more money lighting Christmas lights than we do mining Bitcoin on a yearly basis. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And yet, that's what they look at. So I think that that part of the narrative is overblown. But that said, what is the interesting narrative of Ethereum when, when all the dust settles is going to be what's going to happen to gas fees? Will the network be affordable for its use cases? And if going to proof of stake will allow it to become affordable, it's going to do extremely well. If going to proof of stake centralizes the network too much and the gas fees don't come down or, God forbid, they go up, it's going to lose to Solana and others. Now, but, but the only counter-argument to this is that <coughs> as the gas fees rise with EIP-1559, it's going to become deflationary. It's going to be harder money than Bitcoin, so to say, because it's going to burn more than it issues. I think it takes over 16 way. If the gas fees are over 16 way, it will become deflationary. And you have roll-ups. You've got you know, optimism, arbitrage. Who's going to use it? My problem is, is the gas. if you get into a, a virtuous circle where gas fees in value terms go higher, higher, and higher, how does that help anybody who's using it? Most of the use cases for Ethereum are banking on transactional costs that are cheap. And if transaction costs keep going higher and higher, how does DeFi on Ethereum work when the, prime, the most important determinant of whether or not you can make a market or provide liquidity is gas fees? Yeah, I think, I think the argument is that Ethereum becomes the settlement layer and people utilize, you know, Arbitrum Optimism rollups for the daily transactions and it becomes settlement layer that sure is is more pricey and if we do it on a global scale um then and, that and that's provide. that's fair and, yeah. and that's one of the reasons look i own ethereum i'm not gonna mm. i'm not gonna hide that fact i mean i'm i personally think that there's value there and i think that the layer twos that you're talking about on top of the layer one could very well work but there is a big difference when you're talking about what is a global store of value a global store of value is not something that is owned by people who have control over the network. I mean, nobody owns all the world's gold. Mm -hmm. Nobody can own all the world's Bitcoin in the same way. It is a very different thing. And if you look through the history of money, it has never been something that was, that was controlled until very recently. I mean, we're like 50 years into a fiat experiment. And Ethereum can be made deflationary until such a time as there's not enough of it left and they decide to vote to actually create more, right? You know, it's not, it, it's humans. It's not, an, it's not a monetary policy that's fixed. It, it, there's a big difference between those two things. I mean, the biggest threat to gold as a store of value before the technology of Bitcoin and, and the internet came along was the fact that we might be able to mine an asteroid, right? Right. So think about that. that that's a very big difference. And so, you know, you could talk about the theories and all that. There's room for a base layer like Bitcoin, mm -hmm. and there's room for, a plat, for platforms because there are many things as the world goes more and more digital. And to me, what I, what I have a very hard time understanding 
in the abstract, but I totally understand why it's happening, mm -hmm. is the internecine warfare between Bitcoin maximalists and ETH maximalists and various yeah. tribes in crypto. Now, why I say I understand it fully, but, it's, but it just makes no sense, is anyone who's ever sat in a, in a team and you've seen the religious fervor that yeah. developers have always had versus languages, whether it was Java versus you know C or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, really, developers always end up with incredibly strong personalities and personal biases. So the fact that that's translated into inter-tribal warfare in crypto, I guess shouldn't surprise us. Of course, when you add money <laughs> to the equation too, you know, it's like sports teams, except that the whole <coughs> livelihood is in it, you know. That's right. But the truth is, is the whole community would be better off if people would just work to make their protocols or their projects better. Yep. The, people, the, the people on the Bitcoin side focus on things like lightning mm -hmm. and being able to, and, and layers on top of it, as well as helping people become able to invest in it. Right. You know, we were talking about, you know, before we started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, what is the key for Bitcoin to become digital gold? And the answer to that, if you go through every characteristic of money, of all the characteristics of money, whether it's durability, portability, verifiability, uh, you know, it's transferability, all of those, it literally is a superior money to anything that's ever existed before. But the key is acceptance. And acceptance from, of Bitcoin is still rather limited, relatively speaking. So how do we change that? We change that by, well, education, people learning about it, and also making it ab making people able to hold it without changing their lives. And as much as we hate that, that means Aunt Minnie in Minnesota might need to buy Bitcoin in a brokerage account, or Joe's police benevolent you know, fund may need to buy it through their provider like a BlackRock. And, and the reality is, is that's something that has to happen in order for the average person to think of Bitcoin the same way that they do when they see the Dow Jones. Mm. And that, that's actually a great segue because one of the things, you know, clearly that came up in a prior conversation was, you know, regulation. And just in the last maybe two months or so, we've had, um, you know, the, the Treasury sanction Tornado Cash. We had the SEC, I think, hit 11 or 12 tokens on Coinbase saying that they're securities. And of course, it's the ever I, I watched an old podcast of yours, I think, with uh, Scott uh, Melker about um, the ETF. And I know you had very strong opinions about the ETF, too. <laughs> very. And so and earlier you said, you know, um, you, you believe that these lending markets could happen, but on permission blockchains. Mm -hmm. So where do you strike the balance between all that? You know, I know there's a big disagreement right now, but like we're losing the cypherpunk movement. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to get any sort of adoption without that regulation. I, look. Almost every serious person in crypto that I know, and I know a lot, uh, all believe that principles-based regulation will be a good thing. And all believe that prescriptive enforcement-based regulation is going to push this industry away from the United States, and mm -hmm. it already has been, and is, is costing people money. So well, let's, let's start with the positive first for yep. a change. We can get back to the negative. But on the <laughs> positive side, I mean, what could happen? Well. There's a really good bill, actually, uh, by bipartisan by uh, Gillibrand and Loomis, which basically say, create very clear nomenclature on what is a digital security and what is a digital asset that is not a security. Have the CFTC regulate the latter? Have the FTC, SEC regulate the former? And let them all and let them build their rules. That makes sense. 
the CFTC, to understand the difference, the biggest difference in the CFTC and the SEC, other than the fact that one was controlled by the Agriculture Committee and one by the Finance Committees in Congress. And by the way, that's the reason they don't ever get reconciled. There's a lot of donation money in both committees, and nobody want, no, rest, no member on either committee wants to lose those donations. And I know that sounds incredibly cynical, but happy to say it because I know multiple staffers on the Hill who would agree with me. Generally, no one really disagrees with that statement. So that's why they're two separate agencies. The CFTC has generally been concerned with preserving market integrity. So they care about principles that matter. Yes, they care about the, the participants don't get ripped off. Yes, they care that the principals understand what they're doing when they're doing it. But no, they haven't really focused on protecting mom and pop retail because that really hasn't been part of their market. Yeah. The SEC was formed in the crash. And the SEC's mandate was more or less to protect individual investors and to facilitate issuers, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, protect people but don't kill the golden goose. So the SEC has rules that, for the most part, average over 70 years old. Some date to the 30s, some date to the 70s. Yeah, there are some like Reg NMS that date toward, uh, you know, last decade, but or two decades ago now. Sorry, I'm getting really old. I forget, <laughs> forget when that happened. But the, the reality is, is the SEC rules literally are much more prescriptive. They're much larger. I mean, Reg NMS was 560 some odd pages. Mm -hmm. Hell, the new ESG rule is like 500 plus pages. Uh, none of those rules even contemplated crypto. They don't contemplate an asset class, an asset that can trade against multiple currencies, including other uh, cryptos, on the same platform at the same time. They don't contemplate the idea that you can have on-demand settlement. They think settlement has to be agreed before you do the trade. Well, no, crypto breaks that model. Mm -hmm. They think that custody has to be handled by an institution with capital on behalf, not proof of assets, mm -hmm. right? So there, there are many, many, many things that, uh, why those rules don't work. The most disingenuous statement I've ever heard coming out of a public official, and that's saying something. I mean, consider what I'm saying here. We're talking about politicians, right? <laughs> the most disingenuous statement is when Gary Gensler says, we've had securities rules for the, a lot of years. They work for them. Why won't they work for crypto? And then he proceeds to want to use regulation by enforcement rather than working with the industry to make rules that work. He knows full well that if you apply the crypto rules to the industry as stated, every single crypto exchange would have to stop trading every single product that they're trading. 100% dead stop. Complete end. All investors wiped out. He doesn't care because that gives him a hammer to be able to get power. It has nothing to do with anything logical. Hester Peirce said under Jay Clayton, and it's to Jay Clayton's immortal shame, and I hope he hears this, but his most shameful action isn't denying the ETF. His most shameful action isn't the idiotic lawsuit against Ripple as he was going out the door and giving Ethereum a free pass. And both of those are pretty shameful, by the way. But his most shameful action was saying no when they had a 3-2 majority to get it passed, a safe harbor for crypto exchanges to work with the SEC to craft rules. Yeah, That was a problem. And of course, this administration, which doesn't care at all about anything other than power, isn't going to do it. But that's what needs to happen. Now, but, but the thing with Gensler is like <coughs> you said, like, you know, he does it because he has the hammer. It's, it's giving him a power. But if he actually kills the industry... You actually lose power because if, if, if not him, no <clears throat> he has none of it. His thought is if he kills the industry, the existing brokerage firms will somehow pick up the pieces afterwards. Mm. That's what he thinks. And his friends make a lot of money. 
and who knows what he'll do when he leaves the SEC. I'm not sure he cares, but it's it's very interesting. Uh, look, look, you know, I hate doing personal attacks, but I've offered to debate Gary on so many occasions I've lost track. I know I'm not alone, but he basically doesn't want to talk to anybody. Yep. He doesn't want to ever have an adversarial conversation where these things could be debated. But the simple fact is SEC rules would destroy crypto. It's a death sentence. The industry thinks it for a reason. And it's not because of intent. Most of the industry would love to basically have the following pillars, which are the, the key things the SEC should care about. <clears throat> Sorry. Number one, ring fence investor assets. Mm -hmm. There is not a firm out there that doesn't want to have rules that will make it easy for them in the case that something bad happens to them, that customer assets on their platform aren't protected. And that any, any firm which took customer assets and used them in a way that they hadn't disclosed to the customer would have criminal penalties attached to it. Mm -hmm. I think pretty much everybody agrees with that except for a few notable people who are going through some distress right now. Yeah. Second, another very simple one, uh, anti-manipulation. Rules to actually say what is manipulative, what is real in the markets. Mm -hmm. Every trading platform, I think pretty much all of them, are either using a firm called Solidus Labs or another firm called Aventus Systems mm -hmm. or potentially NASDAQ Smarts. I think there may be a couple of other smaller ones to actually look for wash trading and look for spoofing and layering and things that are manipulation. I think almost everybody believes that platforms that employ those sorts of surveillances are better to trade and therefore it's a better market. Now there's no regulation to say you have to do that, but they all do it anyway because mm -hmm. it's a good thing. A third, one near and dear to my heart, best execution. You should be able to expect when you give, give an order to a platform that you're going to get the best price they can get. And you should understand what all markups are, what all fees are. They, you should know what they are. You shouldn't be guessing. And that's the sort of thing that makes sense. I and mean, I say it's near and dear to me because coin routes, that's literally what we do, is we focus exclusively on best X. Our customers are almost all proprietary traders or funds who make more money if they do a better job buying or selling. People who are acting as agents with the exception of a couple of firms, and I guess I can name them because they're, you know, in, in Bitcoin Swiss was our first investor. Mm -hmm. They came to us because they wanted to, to make sure that their customers knew they were getting best X. So that's why they use us. There's uh, other customers of ours that are in the same boat. I don't know if they have, I have their permission to talk mm -hmm. about them on a podcast, so I'll stay out of it, but that's rare. Most of the agency firms we talk to basically say, well, I'll make more money if I could sell my order flow to somebody, right? You know, and so yeah. they, they don't use us as they don't care. But the truth of the matter is that that's a big aspect of regulation. Another aspect of regulation, probably the biggest, really, if you think about it, is disclosure. Yes. What are you doing with my money? If you're a platform, you know, what are you doing with it? If you are a project, what are you telling me? Is it real? Is it not real? Are you accountable for telling lies? I mean, I was, I was always dumbfounded after the global financial crisis that we didn't have a, a, a regulation set that happened out of the crash of, that, that was similar to what was happened in 27, or 29, I mean. The crash of 29, the, the after effects of that were regulations that if a broker-dealer literally markets something that is mildly misleading, they could be. They could literally get fined by Finra, which which at the time didn't exist, but it exists now. But assigned a fine by the regulators. Real estate agents never had that. You can basically conceal what's going on in a house. You conceal the pricing. You don't have to tell you know why you said told people what your price would be. All of that that never happened. 
It shows how politically powerful they are. So they never had those disclosure rules. And when people worry about the real estate market, we all know what that is. Go buy a place and tell me if, if, if you haven't had the feeling that someone was lying to you along the way. Because if you do, you'd be the first person that I've ever talked to who would say that. But in crypto, it's endemic. There are many people who say many things knowingly not telling the truth. We know that. I mean, it's not just it's, Do Kwan, although he no, may have been the worst. 100%. I mean, it's, it's across the board, whether that's service providers, whether that's exchanges, whether that's projects. Now, the biggest challenge I, I see with that is like, I think disclosures have to improve. They, they have to be standardized. Now, the challenge is that a lot of these projects, they're startups. Some of them have, you know, 50 million market cap, 100 million market cap. You know, they're essentially public from day one, where in the traditional world, they would be maybe a series A, series B, series C. Um, so how do we do that without like, you know, I guess, choking them to death? It's a great question. And, you know, I think that the private markets will be the best solutions. Places like Masari. Yeah. So Ryan Selkis has been pushing this for, well, since I've known him, and I guess I've known him for almost full five years. I've yep. been doing a coin routes. And, you know, I think there are ways to improve that. But a very, very simple rule, which says if you're a project if, and you tell a known falsehood, you're going to go to prison. You're going to be subject to punitive damages yeah. in civil court. Does a lot <laughs> because, you know, people, you know, if you know, if you say, I am going to do X, and, and there's so many examples, and I don't want to pick on any, any of them, and you don't do X, but there's no penalty for that, well, okay, you're going to keep doing it. As soon as people who say things that are knowingly false actually get punished for it, it's a problem. It's amazing how circumspect people get when they know that if it turns out that what they're saying isn't true, they have a problem. So that's why brokerages always have disclaimers up the wazoo, mm -hmm. right? You know, past performance doesn't equal future this, you know, that, and people think that that's all a small thing. Trust me, I've run two broker dealers in my life. I know what I was allowed to say versus what I might've wanted to say when mm -hmm. marketing our products. Those are vast gulfs. It wouldn't hurt for projects to all, you know, 50 million, those founders have still made a lot of money if in fact they, they you know, that's their market cap. It wouldn't hurt them to spend a few thousand bucks to hire legal opinions to say, <laughs> okay, can I say this? Is this reasonable, et cetera? Because uh, eventually holding their feet to the flame. I think that matters, but that's once again, is a principles-based rule. You don't have to have rules that say, you're gonna do a 50 page prospectus, which is gonna detail all this crap about financial statements that don't exist for a crypto project. And that's the problem because the SEC's way of doing this is they're going to have this prospectus and the prospectus is going to be huge and it's going to ask for, you know, what the director's financial statements were and, and what your ARRs are and what your customers are. And everything in the case of these crypto projects that you mentioned are all, all future-based, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's no there there. There are things that they have to disclose. Like, for example, you don't have to ask yourself, how does a corporation run? The board of directors either have one vote each or they're super votes. It's pretty straightforward. Mm. Every crypto project is a totally different governance stack. Yep. And how that governance works and how the token lockups work, all of those things are dramatically important in crypto. None of those are even discussed in the SEC rules. And it's 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 possible for like, you know, shops like mine to keep up, but like for the, the if, if you're doing it full time around the clock, but if you're a normal retail investor, it is impossible to know you know, how are the keys managed, for example, right? Is it an actual genuine multi-sig or is it more so that one guy actually has the keys and it's more, you know, it's consensus on Snapchat because Snapchat doesn't really mean anything uh, because that's, that's, that's off-chain. Um, you I mean, know, it, there, are, there are many aspects of it. Like the most recent hack, that was because people, <laughs> what, what was the name of it? Um, uh, Nomad? 
which which was the one where they they used unencrypted ASCII files <laughs> over the internet. Oh, <laughs> you know, it, it, like to, Ronin. Yeah, it was one of the. I yeah, can't remember yeah, what yeah, it yeah. was. I mean, Lazarus is known to, for sending like you know PDFs. But the fact is, yeah. is, if you do stuff like that, you're going to get hacked. And, and understanding those things, look, there, there's always aspects to it. There's not a company out there of the fifteen thousand or so that trade OTC, yep. which is really the better analog for most of these smaller mm -hmm. crypto projects than the NMS stocks, national market system stocks that you know and love. It, there are many of those companies that are just complete crap. Mm -hmm. So a, a company out there called OTC Markets, run by a friend of mine named Cromwell Colson, he took this over years ago. And what he did was he took the pinks and bullies, which were the total Wild West, and he started creating tiers mm -hmm. on his uh, ATS, his market, and said, okay, if you meet these standards, you could be in this tier. And it has something to do with time, you know, its size as well as levels of disclosure, et cetera, et cetera. It wouldn't hurt for crypto markets to adopt similar things, but they're going to need to be pushed because as long as that you do stuff like that, it costs money. No one does something that costs them a lot of money unless there's an, a natural reason to do so. So basic regulation could allow that to kind of evolve. Mm -hmm. But once again, not the kind of heavy handed regulation that the SEC wants to do. Right. Um, you you know you're you're specialized really in market structure and so something I'm uh, we we talked about earlier before we started rolling uh, is that you know with all these small cap projects you know instead of investing for example into compliance and so forth sometimes invest into let's say market makers that you know make their their charts go wild mm -hmm. as a you know without going to I guess I you know how would you how would you tell a, how would you guide a retail investor how would you guide an investor in general from being wise and avoiding like when do you know that a chart is being manipulated like when are the floats inorganic since clearly a lot of the exchanges they're not monitoring that it's an interesting question you know i don't ever think about it from that perspective the fact of the matter is if you're investing you're basically investing in what are like the pink sheet stocks and i made the point before and i'll make it again for your audience which is what is old is new again I'll never forget in 1998 buying a stock called Net Taxi. Net Taxi, the year before, in 1997, was called Swan Valley Snowmobiles and had a market cap of about $200,000. They changed the name to Net Taxi. They claimed to be forming a digital community. They had something that looks a little like what we now see as, as Clover, you know, the little devices all the retail people have. It was big and clunky and it didn't really work, but whatever. But they claimed to have this thing. And it zoomed from 1998 to 1999 to well over, you know, it, it was well over $200 It may have even gotten towards a billion dollars in value from $200,000. Nobody had any information about this company with the exception of the company and what they said in press releases. Hmm. But it didn't matter because you were buying it to sell to the next guy. You weren't buying it because you were a believer and you thought this thing was going to change the world. Maybe some people did. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is you were buying it based on these sorts of press releases. I don't see any difference between that and any of these tokens. The reason the volumes went crazy there, and this is kind of funny but true, all the market makers that were on, on the street started buying some for themselves because they saw that this was turning into a hype cycle. And so in their personal accounts on Wall Street, this stock was huge. There were a bunch of internet stocks that were like that, where the PA accounts on Wall Street were buying. <laughs> and, and so, you know, then other people came in and obviously this thing got completely out of control. And, you know, it, it, that sort of stuff happens. The fact of the matter is this stuff has happened before, whether it's a security or not. The reality is you need to be looking at volumes that are real. 
you know, the, the Bitwise study being the gold standard in that, you know, mm-hmm. no wash trading sort of stuff. You know, Teddy Fasara and those guys, did they did a lot of really good research on this. I think the wash trading really doesn't happen as much on the U.S.-based exchanges, the ones that are regulated right. here, the Coinbase, the Krakens, et cetera. I think FTX is pretty good about keeping that off. If you see a, a, a token which lists a derivative contract on FTX and the derivative contract is trading 20x the volume of the spot i think that's a dead giveaway that something wacky is going on Mm. uh i think that it's really important to understand that if you see and understand what the market makers are doing uh it's really important so one of the interesting things to look at are volumes and look at the difference between volumes on the weekend versus volumes during the week if the volumes Mm. during the week which have natural people buying and selling in addition to market makers are almost the same as they are on the oh. weekend, then you know it's all market maker activity. If on the other hand, there's a ton more volume during the week than there is on the weekends, then it's highly likely that there's some real volume going on and the market maker volume is is there because people are paying for it and it allows you to subtract a baseline. That's one kind of trick. Mm-hmm. It's not 100% because retail in crypto sometimes is 24 seven, but for yeah. the most part, the biggest difference is we've done these statistics. The order book thicknesses during the week and on the weekend, I mean, the weekend's a little bit lighter, but not a lot lighter, you know, yep. maybe 30%. Volumes are 70% lighter. So mm. you need to understand, and, and there's for reasons for that, because there's a lot of people who trading desks aren't really there, a lot of people aren't really doing a lot of investing in the weekend, particularly in the summer, they're trying to enjoy the weather, et cetera. But the reality is, is that's what you wanna to try to find. The truth is a lot of this data, particularly in the smallest comp- the smallest uh, coins that are traded on the more esoteric exchanges, it gets harder and harder. When you're focused on DeFi, mm-hmm. then it's harder still. Like because coins that so only trade on- Well, no, because coins that only trade on, De- on DeFi mm-hmm. uh, are not being traded by professionals. It's all retail to retail. Mm. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, a lot of what goes on in DeFi, there's a lot of good reasons to think DeFi is going to be a big deal. I've kind of given a bunch of them, right? Yep. But let's face it, today people who pay liquidity, who take liquidity on DeFi, are paying way too much if they, on, on coins where they have a choice. And market makers are making a lot. Yeah. And the reason for this is because if you're a price insensitive buyer, you don't care if you pay too much. If yeah, you're a price insensitive like seller, you don't care if you pay. Uniswap, yeah. Right, so 30 basis points of Uniswap with larger spreads. In general, there was an academic study done that said that DeFi compared to CeFi is about 50 basis points more expensive. On, on the average. Yeah. But that's okay if you're not planning on reporting it to the Inland Revenue if you're in the UK or the IRS here, although with 87,000 new agents, you probably should yeah. think about that strategy. But, uh, I'm with deadly force. <laughs> but the, the reality is that, that there's regulatory arbitrages and reasons why people use DeFi and are willing to pay more to trade mm-hmm. on it. But a lot of the coins you're really talking about when you get down to the small projects are on PancakeSwap alone. I mean, you're not gonna even find them listed, yeah. except if you go to, to exchanges where US, US citizens are not allowed to trade because they're not registered. Like, the, you know, I, I don't wanna start naming because I, I can there's a tier. You, but yeah, I mean, a lot of them just shut down, have issues. I mean, it's, it's been here for many years too. And, though, and, and part of the reason is too, you know, they, they let projects pay to be listed. Well, that's another enormous problem, really. <clears throat> the, the the whole notion of being listed as making people think that it's more valuable because you can get liquidity. What is that basically saying? That's saying, well, listen, we're going to promote your project and you pay us for that. Well, there are listing fees in equities as well. The New York Stock Exchange is not cheap. But there, what you're paying for theoretically is the veneer of the accounting standards to know that, that you're telling the truth. I 
think it's pretty uneven. I think some exchanges actually do do some diligence on the coins that they list and some their diligence exists basically to say, okay, how much money did I get? I don't know how that is and I don't want to talk about it specifically because not my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but the notion that you would pay to list a coin and it's pure marketing and it has nothing to do with, with any ratification of what you're saying to be true about your governance or any of the statements that you've made uh, is kind of problematic. Yeah. And then uh, like the <clears throat> listing is the first part of the market and the second part of the market is like buying volume essentially, which then, you know, as we discussed, makes people feel safer because they think there's exit liquidity, um, which both happens on CFI and even on DeFi. You know, you never, well, you can check, but a lot of times there's a couple wallets that make up most of the liquidity in a DeFi pool. And when they exit, then a lot of these tokens will not have a single droplet of ETH left. I mean, I, I, I have flashbacks. I mean, the whole Luna crisis, which is really the, mm-hmm. the, the example of this, the master example, is a total flashback to me to sitting on the trading desk in October of, of 1987. So what happened in 1987, for people who don't know, is the, the great crash, 25% in one day, which we haven't seen, mm-hmm. the, the biggest percentage crash the big, you know, in, in, in market history, happened because all the big firms on Wall Street sold something called portfolio insurance. Essentially, what they mm-hmm. told... Uh, all these insur- all these companies were, you could buy and we could guarantee that no more than 5% below where you buy it, we will be able to sell futures to get you out of the position. So you'll never lose more than 5% or 10 or whatever the number was, mm-hmm. 2%. It could have been anything. But they sold so much of it that the bids that were normally there in the futures market were dwarfed by 10 to 1. So what happened on that day was there was a, a trigger that a bunch of portfolio insurance you know, uh, contracts had to be sold in the morning. And they all got sold. And the market lurched down 300 points, boom, down, dead. Knocking down massive technical levels and, 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 and some of them didn't even get finished. Then there was a bit of a respite when all the firms finished selling all their forced selling. And then at three o'clock, all the people who had bought stock on margin started getting margin calls. Mm-hmm. And now there was no liquidity left at this point. At now, three o'clock, all of a sudden, kazoom, they start selling again, and it went down mercilessly into the closing bell. By the way, that's why they put in circuit breakers, because they said, okay, wait a minute, this, was, this went too far. I mean, right. generally speaking, if you look at the way the market was, you know, it probably did go too far. I mean, I remember being on the trading desk that day. I always tell this story. People find it hysterical, but it's true. There was, uh, the phone would ring. So the phone on the NASDAQ desk rang. One trader looks at another trader and he goes, I'm not picking that phone up. They're going to make me buy something. And I have, I can't buy anything. The other guy, goes, oh, I can't buy anything. I'll get fired. And finally, it kept ringing, ringing, ringing. Finally, one of the guys picks it up and he goes, I clean, I clean. <laughs> no, no, no. I clean, I clean. No, no, no stock, no stock. I clean. And he hangs up the phone. To this day, I'm convinced that someone who knows Seth MacFarlane heard that and based one of the characters in Family Guy on, on that oh, character. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I watched it Consuela, myself. It was, yeah, yeah, Consuela yeah. was based on, <laughs> I, I still think that that's true. I have no idea how. It was on the Morgan Stanley trading desk. I mean, I've never met Seth MacFarlane. Uh, I don't know, but, it, but I literally heard that for the first time that day. But the fact is, is that there wasn't liquidity. So now if you think about what happened in the Luna situation, you know, they basically predicated upon, well, this is what the liquidity is. And sure, we can handle it. Once it got to be too much, there was air. Yeah. Literal air. I think Full Pool had like half a billion only. Whatever it was, it just 
boom, done. And, and that can happen. And markets are like that. People always, when you think of market structure, they always forget. I don't care what your market structure is. Mm. It always looks the same. Now, you can kind of do things differently, but you know, pictorially, it looks sort of like a bell curve where the, where the price is then is where most of the liquidity is. And the farther you move away from the price the at that time, the less liquidity there is to the point where it always punches through. I don't care if you're talking about an order book. Yep. I don't care if you're talking about an instantaneous auction. I don't care if you're talking about an, a, an AMM liquidity pool. It's the same. So th- what needs to happen in those situations is there has to be some aspect of time. But automated protocols are not really good about creating extra time. Mm. Right? There's no good way for that to happen. And frankly, it's not even certain that it should happen in the case of something where you don't know what the value was to begin with. Yeah. And I, I think that's what made, you know, flash crashes so recurring in the crypto space, um, both on decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges. You know, on DeFi, it sometimes it just takes some newbie to fat finger and say, let me go buy, you know, a million dollars of a token. Then you see, wow, this token just went up, you know, a thousand percent. But even on the centralized exchanges, you know, Kraken, I remember trading in it was like 2019 or so. And I remember <laughs> there was sometimes you had like Bitcoin itself dropping 30%, 40% in like within a second and then go right back up. Or my most famous one was, it was like June of 2017. I was sitting in front of GDAX, you know, the former Coinbase Pro and Ethereum goes from $300 down to 10 cents and then right back up to $300. Yep. And Reddit went nuts because, you know, all the, there's people saying like, I just got stopped out like a dollar for ETH. Yeah. It's actually an interesting topic. I sat on the committees that designed the limit up, limit down rules. Unfortunately, didn't get listened to on a bunch of things because Mm. they were built kind of poorly in terms of the way that that, that, that basically they were right in the first move. But as soon as there was a move, it didn't adjust for those moves. But that's too technical. Look, the reality is, is in a market that such as we've seen, what we have seen is the exchanges get better and better and better and better and market makers get better and better at controlling the damage. Flash events can always happen with electronic order books. That's one of the things at CoinRoutes, we created something called Smart Stop for people who want to get stopped out. Mm -hmm. What does it do? It basically says you can pick multiple exchanges that only if all three of them, all four of them, all five Ah. of them get below that level does your stop get triggered. Now, you may want to trade only on one exchange. Right. But you can at least do that, so that way you won't have that, that, that event happen. But the truth of the matter is that these problems are, the market is solving them slowly. You know, I don't know how much need for regulation there is. What I will say is that markets get more efficient because the more people get burned, the more exchanges act to get more liquidity into their yep. book. So if you look at the difference in FTX, for example, in their liquidation process, and Sam talks about this all the time, they built that into their liquidation process. They have pauses to allow liquidity refreshes to happen. And so far, it hasn't really cost them any money. And that's pretty impressive when you consider what Bitcoin and Ether have done over this summer. The fact that as far as I know, and I've asked him, I've asked both him and Brett most, multiple times, that their insurance fund hasn't really lost anything yeah. because of the liquidity refreshes that they built in. So they're managing to handle these flash events for the most part. Yeah, no, listen, I mean, since since I saw the fund, like this, this industry has come such a long way when it comes to the actual, like, you know, technology beyond and that's a great you know segue into coin routes too because you know when, when i first started the fund when it came to custody there was like kingdom trust and they would like custody bitcoin that's about it right and they said you can't really move it off um then when it came to like portfolio tracking there was like maybe coin tracking research nothing i mean delphi missari this is they came after 
Um, and when it comes to execution, I mean, we talked about it a little briefly before, there wasn't really many slash any names. And even when it came to exchanges, like options market didn't really exist. I mean, Ledger X had like spreads of like two X from each other. Um, and like in those, in those few years, you know, we've gotten like many custodians and stuff, stuff like Fireblocks, Copper and so forth. You've got execution technology like coin routes. You have, um, you know, exchanges just like so much more liquid with so many more instruments. Um, it's it's been incredible for years. And so, you know, that's where I want to dive a little bit into coin routes. What made you choose that particular niche, especially when at the time when you started it, there was an infinite amount of problems open to be solved. Why execution? And kind of what's been the journey of that since? Well, the coin routes origin story is really simple, actually. Uh, I had just exited IHS market on very nice terms and options that were deep in the money, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what to do. And my son, Ian Weisberger, had the idea and he came to me and he said, hey, I'm looking at these crypto markets and they look really fragmented and there's all sorts of arbitrages and people are really gonna need help to navigate these markets. Do you know anybody who knows anything about market structure who might be interested in working with me? Mm -hmm. Of course, I looked at him and he said it was sort of the, the, the way we tease each other because he knows what my career has been. And I said, well, that's fascinating. Now, at the time, you have to understand this was like February, Mar February of, of 17. At the time, I didn't know even I knew what Bitcoin was because a guy in my poker game was always talking it up. I didn't know anything about Ethereum. Mm -hmm. God forbid I knew anything about the, what the difference between a layer one or a layer two was. So I knew nothing. So we dove in and we started analyzing the market. He started collecting data, writing adapters to the exchanges. We started looking at it. And the more we dug in, the more I realized, oh my God, there's a niche that needs to be solved here. The fact is the average person didn't know in December of 17, and I'll never forget this, people still make the car, uh, argument that Bitcoin traded $20,000 in mm -hmm. December of 17. There was never a time ever that you needed to pay more than $17,000 to buy Bitcoin at that in December of, in December of 17 ever. It was always offered at that price at somewhere around 17,000 on Kraken or Bitstamp or someone. Yeah, Coinbase went up to the 19 Coinbase, plane, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Binance and USDT went up even more, but the reality was there was never a time. And when you look at $1,000 or $3,000 differences between mm. exchanges, I knew this was a market that was ripe for innovation. It had all the aspects of everything I've ever seen in my career. In my career, I cared about electronic markets. Well, piecing together electronic markets, that was sort of my jam. Yep. And I did it from the beginning. So what we did is we took a step back and we said, oh my gosh, this market is all electronic, but it's different. It's not the same as equities. What are the differences? Well, there are two huge ones that only a market structure like me, geek like me, would, will, would really appreciate. The first is the tick size difference. Mm -hmm. Unlike other markets, the tick sizes were constrained. Here at the Wild West, anyone, any exchange could set any tick size they wanted. Yeah. To this day, I will tell anybody, and it's a hill I'll die on, that I am absolutely convinced that there's no need for markets from governments or regulations to standardize tick sizes. It does not help markets at all. Mm. It actually, arguably, it's better to have multiple ones and let the market figure out what the best are. Yep. That's neither here nor there. The second is fees. In equities, just by law, the tick size is a penny and fees are capped at 0.3 of a penny. So key, fees are capped at 0.3 of one tick. Mm -hmm. In crypto, the average fee at the time, and obviously it's still true, were double-digit basis points, which in the case of Bitcoin was north, well, right now it's like, you know, what, $20 if it's double digits? $20 fee per transaction, one penny tick size. Do the math. 2,000 times 
the fees can be 2,000 times the tick size. Moreover, the difference between the maker, where you're posting liquidity, and the taker could be double digits for people. And even if it's four or five basis points, that's normal. Yeah. It's still hundreds of times the tick size. So what does this mean? Well, it means a few things. The first thing is it means is massive order fragmentation. Mm -hmm. Unlike equities where all the, the, the orders are queued at the bid, best bid and the best offer and high frequency firms try to jockey with each other to be the guy who's at the first one. It, it's, there's an old expression uh, on Wall Street that comes out of Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, that movie where they say, you know, the first prize gets a new car, second prize steak knives, third prize you're fired. Mm -hmm. Well, in equities, if you're posting and you're at the top of the queue, you make money. If you're in the middle of the queue, you're probably losing money. If you're toward the bottom of the queue, you're losing a lot of money. Why? Because you're only buying when it's about to drop through, you know, drop right. you know, a long way. There's none of that in crypto. So the, the penalty for posting if you're slow in crypto is non-existent. In equities, it's huge. So that's a very big difference. The market data is a huge difference. Coin routes, for example, we process, I toss off 10 to 15 terabytes a day of data, I tell people. To conceptualize that, I'll show people Within 1% of the spread of Bitcoin, within 1% of the best bidder, best yep. offer, there's almost always over 5,000 individual price level exchange combinations among the 10 US exchanges. 5,000 wow. price levels that are meaningful. There's not an equity system built that could ever look at that much data. So we built our system knowing this from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And we built our system understanding these things. And so that's why we built what we did. Because we realized it's something, you know, it's sort of like, what can you do with your own knowledge to actually extend it and then provide value? So when I talk to people about differentiation, I mean, yeah, we're differentiated because we have better data and we are built for a structure of a market that was tailor-made for electronic trading, but not the same way that people electronically trade equities. Right. And, and ultimately, this is also what makes these markets more efficient because, you know, we, we, we talked about it earlier where back in 2017, $3,000 spreads between exchanges. And I would run into people at conference. They said, like, for, literally what they did for a living is move Bitcoin from, let's say, Bitfinex over to Coinbase and rinse and repeat. Or borrowed. <laughs> or borrowed. <laughs> and right. paid lot, very huge amounts of money to borrow, which we were talking about before. I mean, the truth is, is the markets have gotten much more efficient, but I've never seen a signal in my entire a career, and I have ten over over a decade of running statistical arbitrage trading groups, which is when one exchange is displaying a price that is higher than all the other exchanges, that that price is going to drop, not just in relative but also in absolute terms. And the same thing when it gets out of whack on the on the bottom side. I mean, sure, there are cases where they're going to lead the whole market up or lead the whole market down. Sure, but eighty percent of the time, basically close to eighty percent. Uh, the, that is a signal in the direction right. of where yeah, prices are Because it's move. ultimately emotional-driven buying, because if it wasn't, then they would be smart enough to see, wait, I can buy cheaper there, let me go there first. Yeah, now those signals last much much you know, less time. You know, there was a time back in 2018, those signals would last for hours, mm -hmm. right, for whatever reason. But, you know, now they're still, you know, they're still meaningful. And it's important. So if you're look, if you're using an execution venue that isn't looking at all the exchanges, even the ones you don't trade on, you don't know where to price. So, so right now, CoinRoutes is predominantly only for institutional uh, investors, or do you also have a retail product? Because I think not yet. Not we, yet. It, actually, it's a really good question. So you know, right now, our first patent that we're still struggling with the USPTO on, although we're about to write our, our hopefully final response to them, mm -hmm. is for a distributed smart order router. What does that mean? That means every one of our clients gets their own box, mm -hmm. and we have a centralized market data platform that does a lot of the heavy lifting. 
So it makes it an efficient box, but it's still a box. Mm -hmm. And boxes are expensive. Uh, we are going to build a multi-tenant product. Mm -hmm. And we are going to have, I won't call it retail, we'll call it active traders. We're not right. talking about Charles Schwab, but we are talking about think or swim for people who understand Correct. what yep. that is, you know, on a global scale. And that's something that you'll see from us in the not terribly distant future. Now, the, the only catch is that, like, I guess as the market becomes more efficient, won't that squeeze the margin, so to say, where, or, or will there always be new markets that are popping up? They're still inefficient. I mean, we've priced ourselves to be not terribly dissimilar to the way European equity algorithms are traded okay. right now. So we're, we're one of those people squeezing the margins. Mm -hmm. I mean, our margins aren't close to what, uh, what Coinbase's public of margins course. are, yeah. right? And so we know how much money we could save retail. Uh, and it's rather extreme, it's rather large. We, we know how yeah. much money we save institutions and it's pretty good. Our goal is to profit by, we'd like to retain 20 to 30% of the value that we give to our customers. And it's, it's, it's actually surprising that over the years, Coinbase has gone up in fees, not down in fees. A lot of exchanges have gone down. Coinbase, I remember GDEX was 0% maker fee for the longest time. Now it is, I think, 0.6 taker, 0.4 maker. Prime institutional is like 0.1. Um, so it's, you're losing almost a percentage point going in and out. They, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I've been asked a comment about Coinbase many times. You know, the Wall Street Journal quoted me, et cetera. The, the question on Coinbase is 95% of their current margins are gonna compress mm -hmm. in the next decade. The question is over that same time, will the market grow by more than 10X? Sure. Will it grow by more than 20X? If the market grows by 20X and their margins compress 95% and they maintain their market share, then they're gonna be able to maintain that level of profitability. If they can do that, then they're probably cheap at the current prices. They were probably fairly valued back when I made the comment. If the market grows by 50X, well, then they're a good buy. If the market's only gonna grow by 10X or less, they're terrible, mm -hmm. right? And so you really have to understand, look, mar their margins will compress by 90 to 95%. That is an absolute ironclad fact. There's no, I'll make that bet with anybody that within 10 years that will happen. Now, why do I say that? In equities, retail pays nothing to mm -hmm. trade, free. Institutions pay a little. In crypto, institutions pay you know, a little bit more than a little, but still not that much more. And retail pays orders of magnitude more. Mm -hmm. That only exists because retail right now doesn't know who to trust. The, the, the worst kept secret on the planet is if we had a good regulatory regime where retail know, knew who to trust, those margins would go away. They have to, yeah, right? Because the reason Coinbase gets the money they get, the reason the other people do is because the people, the retail says, who could I trust? I gotta trust someone with the big balance sheet. They're the only listed one, you know, who can I trust? Trade it, yeah. And that's a big deal. The more you had better regulation, the more you had trusted players getting into the market, those margins can't fade uh, away. Yeah, they will fade away. It would be that we've, as I said, seen the movie before, you know, we saw what, what, what the, the online brokerages did I mean, I remember how much I used to have to pay to stock trade before uh, the online brokerages came in in the, in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. We're talking, you know, literally during that one period of time. I mean, it dropped, cost to, to trade dropped by well over 90, 95%. Mm -hmm. It's going to repeat. It's the same thing because there's no reason why it wouldn't. I got two more questions for you before I wrap it up. One, since you're a massive market structure, when you try to assess market structure, what are some of the key metrics or indicators or things you look for? So far, I've heard out volume is very important, for example, like spot to derivatives, <coughs> um, perhaps flows, like difference between exchanges. What are some of like maybe your top three, five things that you monitor 
Well, the order book is hugely important mm -hmm. and not the order book on an individual exchange, but a composite order book to mm -hmm. actually know where the supply demand curves are. Yep. Understanding the ratio of that to actual volumes is important mm -hmm. to know whether it's real. We've talked about those yep. things. Uh, the other thing that really matters is, is there a difference uh, between, uh, you know, it's like when you look, look for differences in cross rates. So it's pretty good right now. I mean, in crypto, it, it used to be a big deal. Now it isn't. But if you wanted to know what was going on with, with Tether, for example, mm -hmm. USDC to USD, the best indicator of the price is where you can move large blocks of Bitcoin in the difference between Bitcoin Tether and Bitcoin Dollar, not necessarily where exchanges are pricing small pieces mm -hmm. of Tether, USD, you know. So understanding where the institutional flows are lining up. Uh, the other thing we haven't talked about is term structure. Okay. So you want to understand what's going on in the futures markets that are the liquid futures markets relative to the spot markets. And mm -hmm. if there's a significant forward curve or a contango, both of those things have different meanings. So you need to understand what's going on there. The, the other huge thing as far as derivative markets are concerned is both open interest, mm -hmm. right, uh, as well as some notion, depending on which platform you're looking at, of where... Uh, you know, where liquidations are likely to occur. Mm -hmm. You know, so how much margin is being taken. So notions of the open interest, the amount of margins, which is sort of kind of shown in funding rates, but not really. Uh, those sorts of things, that interplay is very, very important. And then the last thing that's really important in the case of a lot, in Bitcoin in particular, is the on-chain metrics. Yeah. I mean, understanding what's going on in terms of the wallets and the age of wallets and the realized, realized profit in wallets and duration of it and the hash rates on the network. There's a lot of data that goes on and some of the smartest traders out there are using that data as well. So there's technical stuff, there's market structure stuff, and then there's the on-chain stuff. And all of that allows people to get a better idea. I mean, the funny thing about coin routes is, is I like to talk about this stuff, but as Levi Strauss said, you know, we're not digging holes, we're selling shovels. Right. What I'm confident in is helping people when they decide, okay, this is the right time to buy, is helping mm -hmm. them buy it and, Correct. And, the, and, the, and the other side for selling. But there are, there's a lot of data in crypto. I, I make the argument quite often that particularly Bitcoin, but a lot of crypto is, is the most transparent asset class on the planet. There's more known about it than there is about the average equity or, or even foreign exchange. Every time somebody moves <coughs> to Bitcoin, everybody in the world gets to see that. Yep. Um, on that subject, what, what's your, do you have any favorite books that you'd recommend on market structure that have helped you? I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of it is experience, naturally. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of academics in market structure really don't actually know what they're doing. <laughs> Uh, some of them do. I have, I'm friends. I, I, I have friends in the, in the academic market structure uh, community. I always tell people, and I was telling you this off camera, my favorite book for anybody who wants to understand trading uh, is, is an, a book written a long time ago called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And it chronicles a fiction, not a fictional, but a pseudonymous trader called Jesse Livermore. And he talks about trading in the 1870s, if you could believe it, up until the, I guess it was the panic of 19 something or other. It was in the, mm -hmm. the early 1900s. And it amazes, it'll amaze anybody how similar that is to yeah. the way crypto is today in terms of the amount of margin that one could take. You could get 98% you know, percent margin. Uh, now, actually, crypto, you can get 99% margin, but that's different, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But you can get incredible margin. He talks about the bull and the bear syndicates, which are a lot like token founders and mm -hmm. what was going on and other people who market makers who might be doing bear raids. It, it's interesting, but it can give you perspective that if you think what's going on now is new, it isn't. 
Yep. As long as there's financial markets and there's greed and there's fear, these sorts of cycles will play out. And so it gives you a, a pretty, I think it's a really good grounding and perspective for people. Probably not the answer that, <laughs> most, you, you probably knew I was gonna say that because I said it before, but the truth of the matter is I, I heartily recommend that to anybody, particularly if you're posting on Reddit fan threads, or you might, you actually believe that Citadel controls the price of AMC, and the so-called apes. If you believe that stuff, then, you know, I, I got a bridge I could, I'd love to sell you. But uh, the fact is, is these things have been happening for a long time. And the only thing to understand that I would leave people with is that a lot of what happened in those days happens in crypto, but doesn't, but the more you have bigger entities with more on the line uh, and more structure, the less likely a lot of those really bad things are being done by those entities. So it's really kind of right. interesting who would point them out. The worst stuff is usually done by people who you who don't have much to lose if they if they get caught final question market outlook in the beginning you said um it reminded you a little bit of the 2000s the shadow rally up i know you don't want to give the specific timing so we can leave the timing of it out but like structurally like where do you um you said it might get worse where do you just see like the next uh, phase play out i think the next phase is uh, as i said i think i'm i'm concerned about the fall in broad financial markets i'm looking for this time down to be the time that bitcoin and in fact some of crypto delinks from a lot of that i think mm. that Assets that are more or less trading like tech stocks because they're speculative on the future based upon the future of NFTs, the future of this or whatever, uh, are going to move in line with the NASDAQ and, and those sorts of mm. assets. I think Bitcoin, on the other hand, if the Fed is seen to be re-injecting liquidity in order to keep the long end down, is going to explode up or another bull run. I think it will take a while, and I think that the level of that explosion is going to be a lot different than people think. I don't think unless speculators get ahead of it, in which case it'll fizzle out faster, I think it'll be more like climbing a wall of worry, which could be a mm. multi-year grind higher. Yep. Of course, you know you understand how these things work. In Bitcoin, the volatility is such that what you think might be a multi-year grind higher will actually be a lurch up, 50% correction, lurch up, 50% correction, lurch, you know, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. But the fact is, is I still believe that the most likely scenario is Bitcoin will achieve digital gold status within a decade or so. I really do believe that. And that puts me in line with, with you know, very similar to some very famous, you know, Bitcoin maxi predictions. But the truth is, I really believe that, that there is a reasonable likelihood of that. And at the time when the market is pricing that likelihood at less than 5%, mm -hmm. and that's more or less where it's pricing it, sure, to me, that's a, that's a good that's bet. A good bet. And that's what I think a lot of the people who are buying the force selling, that's where they're coming from. They all think it's going to take time. So they're happy to be patient. That's but right. I think you're seeing a weak to strong hands and you've seen it all summer. And so that's why I don't, I, I, I think that things are that way. I, I called for August to into early September to a rally back to the last resistance, which was which between 28. The last, last support was 28 yep. to 32. Yep. So somewhere in that range will be resistance to this rally. And then we'll get tested when things ha go, happen in the fall. Now, if it turns out that the Fed is hyper politicized and they want to buy the vote in November, we could see a massive, massive rally, rally in the fall. Yeah. I don't think that they'll be able to get away with that, but who the hell knows? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not not <laughs> If I did, I, I wouldn't be running a company. Yeah, I would just be running your own shop. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming and sharing all your wisdom. Where can people find more about you? Well, me, I am at Dave Weisberger one on Twitter. I'm Dave Weisberger on LinkedIn. Coinroutes.com for the company. Yep. Coin at Coinroutes on Twitter. 
uh, Coin Routes LinkedIn, and I think the, the team is setting up a Coin Routes Instagram, although I will Ooh. admit to not liking <laughs> to share pictures. My wife likes to say I have a face for radio, so that's why I stay away from Instagram. But the, the company it will be sharing things there as well. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to get many of those clips out so they can appreciate your radio face. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on. It was really valuable. I'm sure we'll have you back on and see how things played out, you know, maybe a year from now. And yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.